Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, how wonderful to hear those words, none but Jesus. May you enable this unworthy servant to uphold that blessed name, the wondrous holy name, our Savior, our Lord, our King, and our God. May he be exalted this morning as you enable your unworthy servant to give forth the word. These mercy we ask through Christ our Lord with thanksgiving. Amen. In Genesis chapter 1 is the unveiling and record of all God's creative work. In Isaiah 45, 18, we learn that he created the heavens and the earth to be inhabited. By the feathered flock, the kingdom of creeping things, and then the kingdom of marine life, the animal kingdom of beasts and cattle, And last of all, he created man in his own image and after his likeness. Then he gave to man the privilege, the privilege of having dominion over all his work, even giving to man the privilege, the privilege and responsibility to give names to all the kingdom of birds and to give names to all the kingdom of beasts and cattle. Not only did God create man more like himself than any other created being, but as it says in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1, man created in God's own image was to be an imitator of God here on earth. And what that means is that man from the very beginning was to be an extension, extension of the life of God here upon the earth that God gave man to dwell upon. What a privilege that was given to our first parents. But we know what happened. How sin changed all that. And instead of man being an extension of, an Im- of the image of God's life, he became an extension of the image of the adversary, Satan. Oh, the awfulness of sin and disobedience. And the older I get, and I'm an old man now, in a couple months I'll be 93. But I praise God we can still bear fruit in old age. (laughs) And regardless whether you're young or old, remember that God delights to work in and through you when your hearts are conquered by his amazing love. Yes, our first parents began to reflect the adversary. Lucifer, Satan, the dragon, the old serpent, but God. But God, in his marvelous love and grace, made a provision for restoration from the very beginning, when he said in Genesis 3.15, to the serpent, what was indwelt by Satan, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. Yes, you'll bruise his heel, but he will crush your head. a redeemer that would restore that which was taken away, like it says in Psalm 69, 4. In the Old Testament, men were redeemed when by faith they claimed the promises of God and looked forward to the coming of the redeemer. 
And all who did embrace the coming Redeemer would again reflect the image and life of God here on earth. 2,000 years ago, the Redeemer came and paid the price for the redemption of sinners that he came to save by his atoning sacrifice upon the cross of Calvary. But before going to the cross, the Lord Jesus gave instruction how his own, his disciples, and all who would be called by his name were to be an extension of his life here on earth. And as said before, which God intended from the very beginning, our text is Matthew 28, 11, chapter 11, 28 to 30. But to give the background for these verses, I would begin reading at verse 21. And I want you to note the terrible judgment that will come upon Tyre and Sidon and Capernaum because they rejected the Lord. And what you see there is what happens to all who reject the Lord Jesus. So if you have your Bibles open, I'll begin reading at verse 21. Woe unto thee, Chorazin! Woe unto thee, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works which were done, and you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I say to you, it shall be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon at the day of judgment than for you. And thou, Capernaum, which art exalted unto heaven, shall be brought down to hell. For if the mighty works which have been done in thee had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I say to you that it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for thee. And now I want you to note who does God call to himself. Verse 25. And at that time Jesus answered and said, I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent and hast revealed them unto babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in thy sight. All things are delivered unto me of my Father, and no man knoweth the Son but the Father, neither knoweth any man the Father save the Son, and he to whomsoever the Son will reveal him. Now our text. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Oh, I have found it so. The Lord reveals the blessed news of the gospel as I point out to those in verses 25 to 27. But how do we come to the Lord? How do we come to him? In Luke 14, 31 to 32, the Lord Jesus illustrates this truth by giving an example of two armies that are about to go to war against each other. The one army has 10,000 soldiers and the other army has 20,000 soldiers. The king commanding the army of 10,000 knows his army has no chance of victory, facing an army twice the size of his own. So, he sends an ambassador of peace to the king that has the bigger army for what purpose? 
to sue for peace and to seek the conditions for peace. And we know from history that when two armies are engaged in war like Japan and the United States, the only condition for peace is total surrender. So when the Lord says, come unto me, man's creator, redeemer, and judge, the only way one can come to him is by total surrender. The Lord said exactly the same thing after giving the illustration of the two armies. Listen to what he says. So likewise, whosoever he be of you that forsaketh all that he hath, he cannot be my disciple. Meaning, I bought you with a price. You're mine. You belong to me. It's no longer yours. And I can prove that by 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 21. It says, what don't you know? Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, which you have of God, and you're not your own. For you were bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Just as in the old, and one of the disgraces of America is the slavery time. What they would do, they'd bring slaves over from Africa, put them on the block, and whoever paid the highest price, the, uh, that slave would become the property of the buyer. We had no rights. And that's exactly what happened when Christ paid for our debts on the cross of Calvary. And that's what he just said here. We become his property. And we do not have rights because he bought them. But he does not treat us like a slave. He treats us like a son, like a daughter. But the key is total surrender. That was my experience on October 24th, 1966, at the age of 37. And oh, how sweet it is when you surrender your life to Jesus Christ. How sweet it is to know his love, to know his forgiveness. You're free, free. That's what I was on October 24th, 1966. I couldn't wait to tell the world. And that word rest, at the end of verse 28 and 29, I want to address later in the message. The Lord delights and desires to set people free from the tyranny of sin and the devil. That's why there's John 8, 31 to 36. Listen to these words. If you continue in my word... Then are ye my disciples indeed, and ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. And you remember the Pharisees said, what do you mean, set free? We're never in bondage to anyone. And the Lord shot back to them, he that committeth sin is the slave of sin. And the servant abideth never, not forever, but the son abideth forever, and the son shall set you free. You shall be free indeed. But he also wants his people, as I mentioned before, to be an extension of his life here on earth. So he says in verse 29, take my yoke upon you. What is a yoke? When we think of a yoke, it conveys the idea of being attached to something or someone usually for the purpose of labor. To that which one is yoked to. To 
illustrate. When I was on the farm and plowed with a team of mules many years ago, they were yoked to the plow by harness with the chains linked to the plow, and I controlled them by reins attached to the bit in the mule's mouth to go left or right or to go straight ahead. And when Christ says, take my yoke upon you, he is saying, come under my authority, which is his holy word. And that's why he said in Luke 6, 46, he said, why do you call me Lord and not do what I say? The evidence the Lord has saved us is a love for his word. Like it says, 1 Peter 2, 2, as young ones desire the pure milk of the word that they may grow thereby that's when we come to faith in Jesus Christ and be alive spiritually we desire the milk of God's word to grow and that's I can remember so well I devoured the word of God I memorized the word of God because it was food to my soul and that's why Job says I've esteemed the words of thy mouth more than my necessary food and to be under his authority when he says, learn of me, what he really is saying is, I want you to be an extension of my life upon the earth, which I gave to you when I saved you. And that is why my title of this message is, Learning That Imitates Christ. Learning is defined as, in the Greek word, manthano. It has the idea to desire, to de endeavor, to seek, to bring, and to experience. And that's why I went to Bible College in 1983, to learn by experience. In Hebrew 5.8, it says, Though Christ were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things he suffered. What do you mean? He didn't know what it meant to suffer? This is what it means. But it says that he learned things by the things he suffered. He learned by experience what he agreed to do before the foundation of the world in his holy relationship with the Father. That's what it means. In other words, what he knew what the suffering would be, now he understood by experience. The believers in the church at Ephesus had come to faith in the Lord Jesus. They had, they had love for the saints. Their learning of fruit, their bearing of fruit was evidence of a life in Christ. They had assurance of eternal life in Colossians 1, 7, just as you learned it from Epaphos, which carries the idea of learning to know more fully the blessed gospel. Then in Philippians 4, 11, whether hungry or full, I have learned to be content in whatever state I am in, meaning to learn by experience uh, to be, uh, <laughs> be content whether you're hungry or whether you're full. Then, Ephesians, then in Philippians 4, 9, listen to what it says. Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are uh, lovely, whatsoever things are good, good report, if there be any virtue, if there be any praise, think on these things. And the things you have learned from me and seen in me, and heard of me, do, and the peace of God shall be with you. In other words, what he was saying is, he embraced the moral and spiritual responsibility of what you learned from me. 
And then Ephesians 4.19, it says, Some of the believers were falling prey to the conduct of unsaved Gentiles. In verse 20, But you have not so learned Christ, for to become related to Christ is to know him, and to know him is to know his teaching and abide by it. Unfortunately, we live in a day as described by the Apostle Paul in 2 Timothy 3, 7, when he spoke of what would be in the days we are now living in, ever learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now, when Christ said, learn of me, he was talking about his humanity. Yes, his deity was in his humanity, but he was talking about learn from him about the life he lived in his humanity. Secondly, imitating the meekness of Christ. We're to learn. What is meekness? It is a complete opposite of how the natural man thinks. It is a condition of the mind and heart which demonstrates a quiet spirit and gentleness, not in weakness, but in power, for meekness is power under control. No one better exemplified this character trait than the Lord Jesus, and our text says we are to learn from him which requires a teachable spirit. And that teachable spirit is described in Psalm 2510. The meek will he guide in judgment, and the meek will he teach his way. His way is seen by so many illustrations that are recorded in the gospel accounts about his meekness. But before I go into these illustrations, I would like to just share a word about the time we're living in. If ever there was a time that the children of God should imitate the Savior, our Lord, our God, and our King, it's now. Because the world has come into the church big time. The, the churches are aping the world. On July 3rd, on July 3rd, I was speaking at a church in Long Island. And they used to flaunt the banner of the LGBTQ banner. But now what do they have? At the entrance of going into the church, they have all the rainbow colors of LGBTQ, and then they have love, love. Nothing about the Lord Jesus or the cross. You see, church, uh, there's been ministries that have surveyed the churches, and the churches today are not preaching Jesus Christ. They're not preaching him. They're not upholding him. They're talking about everything else but him. And no reverence for God. No reverence for God. I could go on and on about that. But I want to say this. Our Lord conquered death, which made possible to have life and eternal life in him. And why the need to understand our text so that we learn from our blessed Lord to imitate him in daily life and not learn from the world and then imitate the world which is happening in our day. Many day, many Christian, professing Christians are imitating the world instead of imitating Jesus Christ. 
Now some illustrations of our Lord's meekness. And John, just, just try to think about this as I share about our Lord. In John 1, 10, 11, it says, He was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. Thank you, sister. And then in John 7, 5, in John 7, 5, just think that his brothers, half-brothers that grew up in the same household, they didn't believe him. He was despised and rejected and held with no esteem. And his hometown of Nazareth, they, did not only did, they not only did reject him, but on one occasion they tried to kill him. Why? Because he had the audacity to share with them from Scripture how God at one time showed grace upon the Gentiles and they couldn't handle that. They wanted to kill him. And in his meekness, he accepted it and just went on his way. Christ was slandered like none other, wine, beber, glutton, cast out, devils by Beelzebub, a friend of publican, uh, uh, publicans and sinners. He was accused of insanity, Mark 3.21, accused of blasphemy, accused of being possessed of devils, Luke, uh, uh, Luke 7.20, accused of breaking the Sabbath, accused of treason. His enemies followed him like hound dogs, ever seeking to entrap and provoke and misrepresent in all that he said and did. And yet, his meekness did not allow him to retaliate. When he was reviled, he reviled not again. He was slandered so much, and all I can tell you is, I know of a man very well, who during the time of his care for his wife, he was charged with trying to kill her. That man said his rage was uncontrollable, for he loved his wife dearly. And that charge was made not only once, but at least 20 times. But yet, if, I was a meek, if he was a meek person, he would have accepted that, just like our Lord did. When he was reviled, he reviled not again. And then I'll finish that verse later. His complete submission to the authority of the word of God. When tempted by Satan, no words of his own. Right away, it is written. So much so that on the cross, so much was the, cross, so much was the word of God so embedded in his mind. As he was suffering on the cross, he remembered uh, uh, um, Psalm sixty-nine twenty. He said, I thirst, and he said, I thirst to fulfill prophecy. That's how much he, the word, had the word in his humanity so embedded and so embedded and inscribed in him that is, the word came out. That's right. He never tried to argue. When we're tempted, what do we do? Sometimes we like to rationalize. Oh, that's not such a big sin. We try to rationalize. Well, others are doing it. But he said, it is written. In John 8, 26, 29, he says, I do nothing on myself, 
I speak to the world those things which I have heard of the Father. As my Father taught me, I speak of those things. I do always those things that please him. In every way, he was in complete subjection to the Father. And why did he do this? Because he exampled, he was, came to be as a son of man. He wanted us to see what, the son, what a man should be like. I want you to understand this. His subjection to the Father was our example is the way we should be in subjection to him. Nothing less, nothing more. Let me repeat that. His subjection to the Father was an example for us to be in subjection to him. Amen indeed. And just as he came to earth, he did it for, he said, I did not come to do my own will. I came to do the will of my Father. He was consumed by doing the will of the Father. In John 4, 32, 34, he says, my food, I'm not interested about earthly food, my food is to do the will of the Father. And you have to be meek to be in that kind of subjection. And if we're meek, we'll always want to be under the authority, under the will of God. Let me give you an illustration. Matthew 12, 46 to 50, he says, uh, they said, your mother and your brother, they want to see you. And Jesus said, who are my brothers and sisters, my mother? I'll tell you who they are. They are those who do my will. And you cannot do his will with a proud spirit. There has to be a meek spirit, ready to be under the subjection and the authority of the king. A meek spirit will always have compassion. Matthew 9, 36, he looked upon the multitudes and he, he was filled with compassion for them because they were sheep without a shepherd. He always heard the cry for mercy, never too weary. And then on Wednesday, and I, I, I'm ashamed to share this, but on Wednesday I was on the way to the cardiologist and there was a dear woman. She had a big placard saying, I'm hungry, give me food. And I don't, since the, I, I only carry the credit card, and in my pocket I had enough money for gas. And I felt so bad. In other words, it never occurred to me that I could give her the money and go back and get, uh, get, to get gas. And I felt so bad, and I said to her, I, I said, I'm sorry. She said, then she thanked me because she said she... I, she she understood. In other words, she, she, she was thankful because I understood what she was doing. But I felt so bad, and I, I, I just prayed, oh, Lord, bring somebody into her existence that can help her. That just haunts me that I, I didn't have that understanding to. I could have went back home, but in other words, if we're meek, we'll have compassion for those in need. That's what I'm trying to drive home. Matthew 7, 24, 27, he and whom the temple was all about, he humbled himself to pay the temple tax. Can you imagine, uh, can you imagine the Lord so meek that he was putting himself down on the same level as you and I and paid the temple tax? What is our attitude in giving to him? In dealing with those of small faith, Matthew 12, 20, the bruised reed shall he not break, and the smoking flax shall he not quench, till he send forth judgment and the victory. 
how we need to learn patience in dealing with believers that have little but genuine faith. He didn't tramp it out. When he saw little faith, he nurtured it. And that's what you and I are to do if we have meekness. In other words, meekness is to have patience and to work with those that need building up in the faith. A meek spirit has a caring heart. And the rest in Luke 22, 50, 51, what did he do? Peter and his uh, uncontrollable temper cut off the ear of the servant of the high priest. And what does Jesus do? He healed it. See, a meek person has a caring spirit. He's not blinded by his rights. No, he sees the needs of others. Jesus saw the need of that uh, servant and he, put, and he healed, the, healed the ear. Everything that the Lord Jesus preached in the Sermon on the Mount, he fulfilled by his own actions. He done what he preached. And it would be good if you and I did the same thing. When's the last time you showed care to someone who did not like you? In the mock trials, when false charges were brought against him, he answered not a word. He was like a sheep led to the slaughter whose mouth was quiet. He answered not a word as he was charged by the high priest. But when the high priest said, are you the Christ? Then he opened his mouth and said, yes, I am the Christ. And then he said, how I will appear in glory with the angels. And then when Pilate began to question him and get irritated because he said, don't you know I have power to crucify you or set you free? And what does Jesus say? He opened his mouth. He said, Pilate, you would have no power at all unless it was given to you by the Holy Spirit. Why did I bring this in here about meekness? He is willing to be accused and still keep silent until it, meant, until it has to do with the honor of his name and of the Father. I want you to think of all his suffering I love, to, I, I love to do this. I love to go all over those verses, those verses that just speak so wonderfully. He was bruised for our transgressions. He suffered for... No. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we were healed. He was made to be sin who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And then, and I could go on and on. This verse too, I like. He redeemed us from the curse of the law by being made a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is every one that hangeth upon the tree. And then it says this. He, he in Matthew 2, 24, it says, all our sins were laden in him and upon him. He that just suffered for the unjust, for what reason? That he might bring us to God. Oh, fall in love with him. Oh, when the more you love him, the more you want to serve him, and the more joyful life is. But you have to be meek. You can't have a proud spirit. You can't have a selfish spirit. You have to have his spirit. He truly said, learn of me, for I am meek. And on, when he suffered all that, what did he do? It says in uh, 1 Peter 2.23, he says, And when he suffered, he threatened not, but he entrusted himself to the Father who judgeth righteously. 
On the cross, he could have called for 12 legions of angels, but instead, and there's truly power under control. But Luke 23, 34, look at this meekness. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And then, later on, he snatched a man from Satan's power. That thief, he delivered, there on the cross, he delivered that one condemned to die, condemned for eternity, but because he was given repentance and faith, today thou shalt be with me in paradise. You see, in all his suffering, in his meekness, he could care. He, he wasn't caught up with himself. You and I get caught up with ourselves, and that's all we can see sometimes ourselves. And self, I hate when I see self in myself. It's ugly. It's ugly. And then his own forsook him, and after his arrest, did he chastise them? No, he called them brethren. Can you imagine that? After they forsook him and fled, after he conquers that, he calls them brethren. Don't that melt your heart? I mean, look how, look how many times we failed, uh, we failed him, and yet he always opens his arm to bring us back when we repent. What a wonderful Savior we have. He's worthy of all we can give him. We want to imitate him in our life. Imitation of his loneliness. I want you to think, why do you think the Lord chose such poverty when he came into earth? He was born in a grotto where cattle bed down and laid in a manger. He, he chose that. And I, when I was in Israel, I, saw, I was in a grotto where the cattle bed down, a place where probably he was laid, not the same one, but one like it. And look who he picked for his mother. Not someone outstanding who was a, a daughter of a rabbi or there in the pan Sanhedrin. No, a lowly peasant girl, but she was righteous. And then, what about the town of Nazareth? Why would he be born? Why would he raise up in town, a place called Nazareth, which nobody could say any good thing about it? And then think of his occupation, a carpenter. A carpenter was not held in any esteem. But it says in Matthew 13, 55, he was held on the same level as his half-brothers and sisters, Joseph, Jude, James, and Simon. And then this poverty, Matthew 8, 19, 20, someone can run up and says, oh, I want to follow you. Oh, you want to follow me? Well, the birds of the air have nests and the foxes have dens, but I know where to lay my head. And to prove that, in John uh, chapter 7, verse 53, after the Feast of Tabernacles, it says that they went to their homes and it says he went to the Mount of Olives under the sun all night, uh, under the stars all night. Philippians 2, 7, it says... He took upon himself the form of a servant. The Greek word is doulos. One who is in a permanent relationship of servitude to another. His will consumed altogether in the will of another that was consumed in the will of the Father. 
Matthew 20, 28 says, I did not come to be served. I came to serve and to give my life a ransom for many. And then in Luke 22, 24 to 27, on the night that he was betrayed, don't bother that, I'll get it later. His, can you imagine this? His disciples, on the night he was betrayed, they were arguing who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. Now look at this, look at, just think of this. Did he chastise them? No. He said, brethren, brethren, who's the greatest? One who sits at the table to be served or the one who does the serving? And he says, they said, well, the one who sits at the table. Yes, and I am one who serves. Think of that. On the night he is betrayed, he presented himself as a servant. These are those words. Look at these words in Matthew 2, uh, Philippians 2, 5 and 7. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but he made himself of no reputation and took upon himself a servant, doulos, like I just described. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore, God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that of the name of Jesus every knee shall bow of things in heaven, things on earth, and things under the earth, and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Oh, praise his holy name. Oh, when your heart gets filled with the Spirit of Christ, why go through the motions of Christianity? Live it. Be an imitator of him. He never did anything to draw attention to himself. He said, don't tell about me just go on and just be thankful for your healing let me give you an, a, a tremendous illustration in Luke chapter 10 70 were sent out uh, to do his ministry and they came back rejoicing they said even the devils are in subjection when we use your name and what do you think he said he said don't rejoice at that Rejoice in that your name is written down in heaven. You see, what I'm trying to do is not only show in his meekness, but his lowliness of, of, of being when he walked upon the earth. And the more I am like him, the more joyful my life is. I fail him so many times, but I don't think I've ever loved him more than I do now or that I want to serve him more than I do now. Because the more he has of your heart, the more you want to imitate him. He would touch a leper for healing. Just imagine a, a leper, everyone to stay away from, but he touched the leper and healed. And not only that, uh, it's hard for me to grasp this. But the creator of this universe in his humanity, kneeling, kneeling by his disciples and washing their feet as a household servant and then drying them. Can you picture anything lower than that? But look at our pride, how many times we think, oh, I'm above that, I'm above that. 
No, he gives these illustrations that we might know him and that we might imitate him. The, the, uh, the Samaritans were a hated people by the Jews. But what does Jesus do? He goes out of his way to minister to them. In fact, he stood two whole days because they wanted him. Uh, uh, yes, even though the Jews hated him, he loved them. It doesn't matter how low we are. He loves us when we're not too proud to own him as Savior, Lord and Savior and King. the parable of the Good Samaritan is truly a picture of himself. And then, of course, his triumphal ride. This speaks so volumes of his lowliness. I'll read from Zechariah 9.9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, thy king cometh on them. He is just, he is righteous and lowly, riding upon an ass, upon a colt, the fold of an ass, Having salvation, the more I get caught up with him, like uh, uh, Horatio Bonar, you know, none but Jesus. He wrote a little booklet called "None But Jesus." Oh, it just lifts him up and exalts him, and you just you just love him more when it, uh, Bonar. He was a great uh, hymn writer, but oh, he was a great writer of the a gospel. But I close this portion with this: Second Corinthians eight nine. For though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor, that we through his poverty might become rich. What a wonderful Savior. What a wonderful Lord. Oh, bless his holy name. Bless his holy name. Oh, let's find joy in imitating him. I said I would, at the beginning of the message, I said that I would come back and speak a little bit about rest. The Lord does not say that about everyone who bears his name. In Hebrews 3.11, listen to what it says. Here we have the Lord's indictment against those who rebelled against him in the wilderness. Wherefore, I was grieved with that generation said, they do always err in their heart and they have not known my ways. So I swear in my wrath, they shall not enter into my, my rest. Why? Because of unbelief. And I say to you this morning, are you resting in him? Do you have his rest? Do you have his peace? Have you surrendered your life to him? He demands it. He commands it. He has a right to because he paid your debt on the cross. It is time we get let free of the world and all its, all its uh, what's that word? All its influence upon us. Let's get separated from the world system that is on its way to destruction. Let's get caught up with our blessed Lord who loves us and gave himself for us. The following is rest from an unknown servant of the Lord, but I share it with you. Rest from a conscience that convicts a sin. And that's what I knew on October 24th, 1966. Rest from the conviction of sin. Secondly, rest from the remorse and guilt of sin. We can say that, yes, we still sin sometimes, 
but because he has given us a fountain for cleansing his precious blood. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. For the blood of Christ cleanses us from all unrighteousness. There is forgiveness, so we don't have to maintain that guilt. But if you've never come, then you have to hold on to that guilt because it won't go away. Third, rest from the enemies of the soul that cause bitterness. And what are those three enemies? The world, the flesh, and the devil. And there will be our enemies till we die. But let me show you. You heard me say this before. The water glass of our Lord's life was completely empty of self. Ours, the water glass of our life is sometimes maybe half full, three quarters full. But we don't have the fullness of the Spirit of God working because there's self in there. Let's die to self. Let's die to self so we can more imitate our blessed Lord. So that when people see us, they know, we, just like with Peter and John, they knew that he walked, they walked with Jesus. Let people see us, uh, not by saying, oh, you, you need to be saved. No, let's reflect Christ here on earth. And then people listen to us. And rest from our labors that are in vain. I think, you know, dear ones, oh, it's getting late. Um, for five, six years, five, six years, I was a do-gooder. I thought I was a terrific Christian. Yes, works righteousness. But the Lord knew how to humble this proud soul. And when he brought me down, 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 I was ready to surrender my life to him. Then I knew how much he loved me. Rest from the cares of this world. I fear many are like the crowded heart in the parable of the sower of the seed. The world is creeping in, it's crowding out his joy, his peace, his love, and the joy of the Lord because the things of this world are creeping in. But he gave us rest from the cares of this world. And then rest from trying to find satisfaction in the desires of the flesh. And professing Christians still try to do that. But you'll never find it. He made us a spiritual being in his own image and after his likeness. And he redeemed us by his blood. We can be a new creature in Christ and that's the way we're to live. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Then the eternal rest. Oh, this will be so good. And I heard a voice from heaven saying unto me, Write. Blessed are the dead which die in the Lord from henceforth, yea, saith the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works to follow them. Oh, don't you look forward to that day? Knowing that we're accepted in the beloved, knowing that our labor is not in vain in the Lord, and knowing that we did honor him while he gave us life here on earth. Now, just a few words of application. The yoke of Christ is intolerable. To the unsaved, and I fear that also is true of many professing Christians. Uh, let me repeat again. The yoke of Christ is intolerable to many, to the unsaved. But I fear it's true of many professing Christians. The world needs to see men and women, young people, all profess Christ. They need to see what our text says. What should the gospel, why should the gospel interest the saved if they see no difference in the character of those who profess Christ? If we're not imitators of Christ, then we will drift into that ever-coming sea of selfishness. I want you to listen to these words from Proverbs 14, 2, and chapter 15, verse 3. Chapter 14, 2. He that walketh in his uprightness feareth the Lord, but he that is devious in his ways despise him. In other words, if we're devious in our dealing with one another, we're despising the Lord. Think of that. If we are devious or not right in dealing with other people, that if we claim to be a Christian, 
We're, de- we're, we're despising the Lord. When I read those words, I had to memorize it. Because it's so powerful. Think, we fear God when we do right, but we despise him when we don't do right. And then 15.3, the eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the evil and the good. Proverbs 21.2, every way a man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord pondereth the heart. Proverbs 16.2, all the ways of man are clean in his own eyes, but the Lord, he weigheth the spirit. He knows exactly, uh, he weighs, he knows exactly whether it's true or untrue. A pastor for over 30 years by the name of Hensworth, Jonas in his booklet, The Spirit and the Christ, wrote the following. When professing Christians drift away or become cool and go through the motions of the Christian life, he wrote, it's a sign of God's abandonment. How awful to be abandoned of God. There are many Christians who profess but do not possess the spirit of Christ, the evidence of salvation. That's the evidence of salvation. If the spirit in us can... That the spirit of Christ that tests with our spirit that we belong to him. When we no longer imitate Christ, then our lives, whether we realize it or not, will be governed I want you to listen to this carefully. When we no longer imitate Christ, then our lives, whether we realize it or not, will be governed by the rules, listen, the rules of society and the rights of self and the rejection of standards. I want to read that again. When we no longer imitate Christ, then our lives, whether we realize it or not, will be governed by the rules of society the rights of self, and the rejection of standards. Remember that. And I could say something else, but you think I say it's political, and I'm not going to do that. There are many things happening today that behind it is Marxism, and yet many believers are being lulled in in a sense by the propaganda that comes over the airwaves. Our, our, Our role is to be under the authority of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords to reflect him, not get caught up with the politics of the day. Christ alone in us, the hope of glory, is what makes God real to humanity. I believe that is why the apostle writing to Colossians wrote chapter 3, listen to these words. If you then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. Don't set your thing, effects on things on the earth, but set your effects on things above, for you're dead to them. Your life is hid with Christ in God. Then when Christ, who is our life, shall appear, we shall appear with him in glory. We're living at a time when many countries, there's great persecution for followers and imitators of Christ. Many suffer willingly for their hearts and are not blinded by the things of this world because they don't have them. And this is exciting. There's a, um, there was TWR radio, there's a, a Far Eastern Broadcasting Company, but there's Sat 7. They're beaming the gospel into Afghanistan and try to picture this. Sometimes 25, 50 will get into one house just to hear the gospel. And the Taliban can do nothing to stop it. 
people in the other parts that never heard the gospel, they're excited about the gospel. They're not caught up with the things of this world. Oh, that we could get caught up with the, the gospel, the blessed gospel. We are in our, we in our country have, in our country, we have things that let, we let come in between our soul and our Savior. But remember, the eyes of the Lord whom we are to imitate are upon uh, his own day and night. And uh, I cannot tell you how much I love song, uh, Hebrew 4.13. Everything is naked and open before the eyes of him with whom we have to. I love that verse. Nothing is hid from him. Everything is naked. And that's why that booklet, uh, The Secret Sins in Light of God Will. Proverbs 15.11 Hell and destruction are before the Lord. How much more than the hearts of the children of men? To imitate Christ requires what he said in Luke 9, 23. Deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me if you want to belong to me. Is that what Christ did? And when we have his spirit of meekness and humility, listen to what Proverbs 22, 4 says. He promised, by humility and the fear of God are riches, honor, and life. Let me repeat that. <laughs> With, by humility and the fear of God are riches, honor, and life. If we indeed do reference and love the Lord Jesus by imitating his meekness and humility, what is promised is true riches, true honor, and the life of Christ in its fullness. Let us take upon ourselves the yoke of Christ, and surrender all to him. Surrender all. We said that hymn, I surrender all. I love to sing it. I surrender all. I surrender all. Surrender your life to him. Then we will truly imitate Christ and will be truly free, free to live as God intended when he created man in his own image and after his likeness in the very beginning, praise his blessed holy name. Almighty God. Oh, we love thee, but we grieve when we offend thee. Give us a heart to learn from thy well-beloved Son what it means to imitate from learning the humility of our Lord, his lowliness and his meekness, that we might better reflect him in a world that's in going into great darkness. They need to see the light of Jesus in us. Oh, Lord, may your word not return void this morning, that we might indeed have an, an incentive like never before to imitate our blessed Lord, who hath given us life and given it more abundantly, and one day we shall be with him forever. In Jesus' name, amen.